in some ways, I feel like right now, I feel like, you know, what some people must have felt like in 1776. Forget the king. Forget the orthodoxy. Let's change the system. Let's build a parallel universe. Let's develop a new tribalism to navigate. Let's find our family. Let's find our family and build a benevolent parallel universe that offers hope and help when the universe becomes hopeless and helpless. And that's what this gathering's all about. Welcome to Where Hope Grows, a podcast curated to tell the inspiring stories of land stewards, ranchers, and farmers who are on the front lines of the regenerative revolution. Interweaved with wisdom inspired by Mother Nature, these journeys are testaments to her capacity for healing ourselves, our agricultural systems, and our planet. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. No matter where you are or what time of day it is, we are about to unearth where hope grows. Today's episode is quite a special one as we are joined by a true force of nature who goes by many names. Some will call this man the goat. Others have referred to him as the high priest of the pastures. Some have even called him the most eclectic thinker from Virginia since Thomas Jefferson. Any guesses who I'm talking about? Well, perhaps we should ask the man himself how he likes to identify. Joel Salatin refers to himself as a Christian, libertarian, environmentalist, lunatic farmer, and is the owner and founder of Polyface Farms. If the name Joel Salatin or Polyface Farms sound familiar to you, probably because he was featured in Michael Pollan's Omnivore Dilemma, as well as the documentary Food, Inc., Joel's farm currently serves more than 5,000 families, 50 restaurants, 10 retail outlets, farmers markets, all with such cool offerings like what he calls salad bar beef, pig or raider pork, pastured poultry, and other forestry products. On today's episode, we have the pleasure of listening to Joel share his profound and often humorous wisdom on the main stage of our second annual What Good Shall I Do conference which takes place on the wildflower-filled banks of the Pertinalis River right here at Rome Ranch each spring. In Joel's masterful presentation, we explore how we arrived at a place of outsourcing our participation in the basic needs for survival with the promise of freedom. Turns out that was a pretty bad idea. And in the recent wake of COVID, conflicts overseas, domestic turmoil, those who have opted out of participating are the ones most enslaved by the very system that promised liberty. In a lived experience that is so well crafted in only a way that Joel can deliver, we find our way back to participating in the fundamental necessities of life in a matter that enriches our time on earth together. So, get ready to reconnect your ecological umbilical cords to the things that matter most. And here is the legend himself, Joel Salatin. Thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you for letting me share with you a little bit. What I want to share uh, in this first, I'll have two, two talks today. Um, what I want to share in this one is a thought that's really struck me uh, through, through the whole uh, black swan events that we've had here 
uh, with COVID and then with the war in Ukraine and all this stuff. And, and um, our farm, like many of you, I'm sure, uh, has been kind of the, um, the outcast in the community for a long time. Uh, you know, a prophet's never loved in his own country. And uh, I've been called a bioterrorist by my neighbors. I've been called a typhoid Mary because we're so negligent. We don't vaccinate the cows. And so we know they're all going to get sick and they're going to make, you know, the, uh, and the red winged blackbird that lives down in our, you know, around the bulrushes in our pond is going to take our sick cow diseases to the neighbors and they're going to lose their farms because we're so negligent. We don't, you know, take care of things. And so, uh, so here we are, you know, we're, we're, we're kind of feel like, uh, you know, like, um, uh, we're in the we're, we're Cinderella in the ashes, you know, and then all of a sudden COVID comes and the store fills up because we've got the food. Kroger doesn't. And uh, and suddenly, yeah, yeah, it was I mean, we sold we sold six months worth of inventory in six weeks. It was just the most unbelievable. And we lost all of our restaurants. Uh, so we were glad for the sales when we were losing, you know, a million dollars worth of sales from restaurants. Um, so it was, you know, it was a, it was a very, uh, um, shall we say, disturbing time. And um, that's what that's what black swans are. And then, of course, you know, then, then we've got um, Putin invading Ukraine and we've got fertilizer going up 400 uh, percent. And um, all this stuff's happening. And suddenly. We feel like we're Cinderella being invited to the ball. And all these farmers are whining and all this, this, uh, oh, life is terrible. Oh, you know, what are we going to do about this? You know, these fertilizer costs, what are we going to do about, you know, energy costs and, 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 uh, all this, this whining and carrying on. And of course, you know, they're on doing op-eds for the wall street journal and whatever. And, and, uh, and we're sitting here. Go ahead, Putin. You know, we don't buy any of your fertilizer. Uh, we were immune. And uh, our little slaughterhouse, you know, I mean, we don't go to a great big centralized, you know, thousand employee slaughterhouse. We just go to a, a little neighborhood one there, you know, with about 20 employees. They never closed down. Um, they didn't they didn't lose sleep wondering if uh, you know HR department, oh no, did we close down the right quadrant over there and make sure we had the right quarantine procedures? You know how many billions of dollars got spent uh, with uh, installing plexiglass barriers and having new um, hold harmless agreements and quarantine procedures and I mean it, it, it's billions and billions of dollars and 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 what we realized, what we realized as uh, now, what we realize now is that we were told for decades how to do things. Mainly, we were told, you don't have to do much anymore. Just leave it to us. And we just soldiered on. And we made compost piles. We didn't trust our fertilizer to somebody else. We sold stuff direct to customers. And what we realized is that the freedom and independence we've been promised for decades was actually enslavement 
And those of us who continued slogging along, you know, participating, we were free. And that's a, that's a huge functional change. Let me just go through a couple of things here. Um, you know, we were told that if you, if you don't engage with life's necessity, just, just disengage. It's okay. You don't have to worry about food. We'll make it for you. Trust, you know, trust uh, Kellogg's. Trust Tyson. We're feeding you like family. We, we even, we even uh, developed apartments in the city with no kitchens. You know, they call them breakfast nooks. Uh, you don't have to cook at home. Um, right now, 50% of all food consumed in America is consumed in an automobile. Think about that. I mean, we, we, we have, we, the whole idea is we're going to liberate you from culinary responsibilities. We're going to liberate you from the kitchen. Just buy little single packages. Just, you know, uh, you can graze if you want to. Nuke it, pop it in the microwave, you know. Uh, it's all great stuff. And you don't have to worry about that. And you know what? When you since you don't have to be in your kitchen, now you can you can do other more important things like keep up with the podcast from the Kardashians. You can you can go to more football games. You can you can sign up for Netflix. You can get another five apps on your smartphone. We were promised liberation. We were promised freedom. And what we got was empty Kroger store shelves. What we got was a paranoid population that the first, first time in my life actually was concerned about running out of food. I mean, I had these two young couples come up to me at the, at the sales building, and they asked me totally sincerely, do, do you sell food insurance? Food insurance? What food insurance? We got fire insurance. We got homeowners insurance. We got auto insurance. We got life insurance. You know, you got all sorts of insurances for things that, you know, you think you might uh, lose. Who ever heard of food insurance? So, well, we're, 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 we're a 200-member, you know, a uh, uh, bunch of families, and we're really concerned about what's happening, and, and we want to know if we can buy food insurance from you. And... Of course, I didn't have food insurance. I'd never heard of food insurance. I didn't know what it was. But it spoke to it spoke to the worry and the concern of, of people. So we were told to disengage. You know, it used to be that, uh, that if I went into town and said, where's all the food? The food was in people's houses, in their larder. You ever heard the word larder before? We don't even use the term anymore. I use the word larder, and people, what's that? What's a larder? One of the most successful marketing campaigns we've ever done in the last 10 years was, was the larder coach program. And I explained to our customers, you know, we don't, we don't stash food anymore, but it's time to. But I understand that you don't know how to do this, so we will help you. So if you buy 10 chickens instead of two, we'll knock 10% off the price to coach you and help you develop a larder. Okay? <clears throat> How about um, energy? You don't have to participate in energy. Just 
just trust the local petroleum company, lo trust the local propane company. You know, it's okay. You don't have to think about energy. Just go to the pump and it'll be okay. Well, some of us lived through the uh, Arab oil embargo of the early 1970s. Some of you my age remember that. You know, you couldn't get gas, but every other day, and you had to have a right license tag that corresponded to the right day. And that's when the wood stove craze started. That's when our, at our farm, we, we quit, uh, we shut down the, the uh, fuel oil furnace and started burning wood. And, of course, then we put on a solarium on the farm uh, so we could get passive solar heat. And, um, and, and so, so, again, this, this, you don't have to participate in energy. Uh, you, just, you just flick a switch, and it's, it's always there. And then suddenly we get rolling blackouts, and we, you know, we have uh, grid problems. We have a, you know, a, a county in um, North Carolina uh, last fall. Somebody went and shot a, uh, a transformer thing and plunged the county uh, into, into no electricity for over a week till they got it going again. Um, so maybe we better participate in energy a little bit. How about education? Don't worry about education. We'll take your kids, send your kids to us, and we'll educate them. And then we've got, you know, in Virginia, we had this, uh, this uh, gubernatorial campaign with Terry McAuliffe and uh, Glenn Youngkin, and, and, uh, and with COVID, suddenly parents started looking over their kids' shoulders, seeing what was on the screen, and said, whoa, I'm not sure I want my kids to learn that way. And Terry McAuliffe, the gubernatorial candidate, went up to Northern Virginia and met with all the parents and said, you know, I don't think parents should tell teachers what to teach. He lost the election. I'm sure if there was one phrase you'd like to take back, uh, it was that. He got the mama bears all riled up. And so what we have now is we have in the last, in the last uh, year and a half, uh, we have a million parents that have started homeschooling. I'm, I'm speaking at home. I'm going down to speak at the Florida homeschool convention here. I'm speaking at homeschool conventions. I mean, like that's the, that, 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 that's another thread of this entire participatory thing. Now, don't worry. I'm going to talk about farming and food. I'm not, I'm not trying to go too far afield here, but I'm trying to help us to understand that this, this, this lack of participation has been a theme in our culture for some time now. Just don't worry, we'll take care of you, whether it's the government, whether it's some big corporation, whether it's some big outfit. Don't worry, you just, you just go to your football game, turn, get your beer, um, uh, you know, and sit down and watch the football game and keep up with the Kardashians and life will be good. You know, uh, you, can, you can check out. Um, relationships, you know, you don't have to know your neighbors. You don't have to know anybody. Just, just um, trust us. We'll, we'll take care of you. you. You know, you don't have to know anybody that knows how to do anything. You don't have to cultivate any relationships. You don't have to have potlucks. You don't have to have anybody over. You just, you just be an individual. You know, uh, 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 we, we've got a cult of individuality in this country. In this country. Now, I like personal freedom, but nobody's an island. And we're a lot stronger together than we are apart. Good things are built by teams, not by individuals. Uh, all, all the gifts and talents to be successful don't grow on the same pair of legs. And that's why we marry people that are opposite us, right? Extroverts marry introverts. Messies marry cleanies. Starters marry finishers. Savers marry spenders, okay? But... 
but we've been told these relationships are, are, are unimportant. And, and you don't have to know, you don't have to have a friend that's a mechanic. You don't have to know, have a friend that's a farmer. You don't have to know any of these things. You don't have to build any relationships. And then suddenly we have these black swan events and suddenly, oh no, you know, who's going to, who's going to fix my car? Oh no, who's going to grow my food? Oh no, who's going to, who's going to build the, you know, suddenly I, I, I'm wanting uh, some garden beds and a solarium and, and you know, who's going to, who's going to do that for me? How about economics? Don't worry about money. We got you covered. You just keep going to the ATM machine, keep using that old good credit card, and the Fed's got you covered. Anybody here think the Fed's got us all covered? <laughs> Suddenly, with all this, uh, um, you know, government spending, we're spending, we're, we're, we're printing money like it's going out of style, and suddenly, a lot of people are concerned about the economy, concerned about money. Uh, central banking, digital, current, whatever it is, CBD, I don't know. It sounds like, you know, between marijuana and money, I'm not sure which. <laughs> CBD oil. and But it's, you know, it's got a lot of us concerned. And so what do we see in, in response? Well, we see Bitcoin. We see, you know, uh, buy gold, silver. We got Robert, you know, Kiyosaki is the, you know, is the darling of, of this. And and um, I don't know how many of you ever uh, heard of uh, Doug Casey. He's a libertarian, uh, the international man. He does a pod, uh, blog, and he said last week, and he's not a farmer. He's a he, he had made his money uh, investing in you know in in mining stocks over his life. Self-made millionaire. He says he says in 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 societal hurricanes, the best shelter you can have is a farm. And so we are seeing, and I'll this will be the topic I'm going to address this afternoon, we are seeing an absolute homestead tsunami in response to, don't worry about anything. You just come home, flick the switch on in your apartment, um, and we'll take care of you, and we'll take care of your paycheck, we'll take care of your money, we'll take care of your bank account, and then Silicon Valley Bank fails. And then Swiss Bank fails. And people start saying, whoo. You know, maybe, maybe I should cash in my 401k plan and learn how to fix my lawnmower. Maybe I should cash in my 401k plan and buy a five-acre place where I at least have a garden, drink out of a spring, shoot a deer if it comes. There's a lot of deer to shoot around here. Um, and and, and I, I can actually, you know, uh, uh, grow some food, you know, harvest a tree to stay warm with my, you know, family. Um, health. You don't have to worry about your health. AMA's got you covered. American Medical Association. You just trust us. We'll be fine. And suddenly we're, we're seeing, you know, we now lead the world. It's fun to be number one in some things. You know, you want to have, yeah, we want the, you know, the best basketball team. Yeah, we want the best soccer team. You know, you want the most gold, uh, the most gold at the Olympics, right? You know, there's, sure, there's national pride and all this. Well. There are some things you don't want to be number one in. And America is now number one in chronic infectious disease morbidity. Wow, that's a great place to be number one. I wonder if we're number one in that because we invented genetically modified organisms. And we invented glyphosate. And we invented 
um, you know, antimicrobial soap. And we invented the internet. Oh, okay, that's, that's too far. Um, but, oh, that's right, Al Gore invented the internet. I forgot that. Okay. Here's the point. Here's the point. We've been told, you don't have to worry about your health. Just, you know, just eat happy meals. Feed your kids Lunchables and, and, uh, and, and Hot Pockets. All will be well. And suddenly, we're seeing a spike in all sorts of things. And, of course, again, COVID, this black swan, created a, a, a massive interest in health. It's a good thing. It's a good thing. Suddenly, we've got people interested in health that have never been interested in health before. You know, wouldn't it have been cool if Dr. Fauci had stood up to the microphone and said, okay, America, here's what we're going to do. We're going to try an experiment. Uh, instead of trusting Moderna and Pfizer to take care of us, we're going to participate. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to try a one-month experiment where we're going to see if we can build our immune systems. Here's what we're going to do. For one month, nobody's going to drink any Coke. No Dr. Pepper, no Mountain Dew. You know, we're not going to drink any sugary, high-fructose corn drink, uh, drinks. Uh, we're going to cook from scratch. We're not going to eat Lunchables, Velveeta cheese. You know, Velveeta cheese. I mean, cheese is not supposed to be squeezable. You know, if, if you can squeeze cheese out of a tube and put it on a table and walk away from it for a year, you come back, it's still sitting there. Real cheese, you're supposed to cut it, crumble it, put it on the table, and in two days it grows fuzz, and in three days it grows legs and walks off the table. That's real cheese. So we're going we're gonna to actually cook from scratch for a month. We're going to get real chicken, real beef, real bison, you know, and we're going to cook from scratch. Let's see, what else are we going to do? Oh, nobody gets enough sleep. So I want you to shut off the TV, forget the late night show. Everybody's going to go to bed. We're going to sleep for eight hours a night, everybody, okay? And we're dehydrated. So everybody's going to drink a half a gallon of water a day. Hey, we're, gonna, we're all going to drink a half a gallon of water a day. We need to move. You got to get exercise. You got to, you know, so we're going to sweat 20 minutes a day. I don't care whether you do yoga, you know, lift weights, dig post holes, cut multiflora rows. I don't care what you do. Just work up a sweat for 10 days. That gets all the toxins out of your body. It's like, it's like an internal sauna and it gets your, your fourth dimension of water un, unsolidified and turns it into jello so it can do what it's supposed to do. All right. We're going to move, all right? And while we're doing that, uh, we're going to get 20 hours of sunlight a day. You're going to get that vitamin D. You're going to go out and uh, get in the sunlight every day. We're not going to sequester in the house. We're not going to lock down. We're going to, you know, we're going to we're going to get outside and get some sunlight. And uh, let's see, what else what else should we do? Um, well, we'll um, we'll I know what <clears throat> we're going to do this. For every one hour of news you watch, we're going to watch two hours of side-splitting comedy. I don't care if the comedy is clean, raunchy, or what it is. I want you to laugh for two hours after watching news for one hour. Okay? And finally, here's what we're going to do. Everybody is going to take out a piece of paper and write down the names of all the people that have done you wrong. Everybody's got them. 
can be your parents, it can be siblings, it can be business associates, it can be people that didn't pay their bills, whatever, you know, I, I don't, somebody's done you wrong, write all their names down, and we're going to forgive them. And we're going to forgive them. Okay, everybody, we're going to, I can't mimic Dr. Fauci, but I, I can get short like that. Um, the point, can you imagine if that had been the recipe, the regimen to deal with it for one month, does anybody think we might have been a healthier nation? Yeah, yeah. I think we would have been a healthier nation. But, the whole deal was, you don't have to worry about your health. We got a shot. We got a shot. All you got to do is depend on somebody else. They'll fix you up. You just keep eating your Hot Pockets lunch and your Coke and all that, and, and, and that'll be fine. We've got, a, we've got a shot for you, baby. Trust the science. Yes. And what this has done is spawned, everybody, it has spawned and germinated a completely new revitalized interest in herbalism. Herbalism, let me tell you, it is rolling. Um, sharing insurance, all sorts of different ways to live. And <clears throat> this is not... This is not specific, but it, but it's but I think it's important to understand that we have been that the the hardcore uh, environmentalism movement has been a very non-participatory thing. Let's all withdraw, and we'll let Nature Conservancy take care of us. We'll let Audubon Society take. We'll let the EPA take care of us. We'll let the DEQ take care of us. And. And, and, and what we've got to do is get people off the land. I mean, and, and look, I get this. I get this. We look back through the history of civilization, and what we see is the, 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 the action that humans have done on the land throughout history generally has not been good. We've seen the rise and fall of civilizations. A lot of it has risen and fallen based on soil health. Romans, Greeks, you know, Persians, I mean, all through, uh, our, uh, including ours, uh, our track record is not good. So I get this, this guilt. I, I get it, you know. So if, an, if, you're, if you're a thinking, intentional, caring person, you look back throughout this history and say, oh, my, you know, we'd better, we better not touch the earth. We better not touch it. Every time we touch it, we hurt it. And so let's lock everything up in parks and, 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 and get, you know, get people off the land. Okay, so let's all do our repentance and sackcloth and ashes. I have. I'm sorry for all my ancestors have done. All those people back there, you know, yeah, I'm sorry. Forgive me, okay? Then what's the, what's the answer, though? It's not to just go into a fetal position and failure to participate, it is to dust yourself off, get up, use our intellect and our mechanical ability, you know, opposing thumbs, and interact with 
our ecological umbilical so that it's not seen as an enemy, as not seen as something apart from us, but actually a benevolent lover to caress in the right places. That's a major difference. And so we begin participating. And we start building ponds, and we put in fences, and we start moving cows around, and we, and, and, and we participate with it. That's what's pretty cool. So my point here is that we have been, we have been promised something. We've been promised culturally. We've been promised freedom by not participating and then we get these black swan events, and suddenly we realized, wow, those of us who participated were more free than those who didn't. More and more, liberty looks like opting out and severing ties with the orthodoxy rather than try to change the system. In some ways, I feel like right now, I feel like, you know, what some people must have felt like in 1776. Forget the king. Forget the orthodoxy. Let's change the system. Let's build a parallel universe. Let's develop a new tribalism to navigate. Let's find our family. Let's find our family and build a benevolent parallel universe that offers hope and help when the universe becomes hopeless and helpless. And that's what this gathering is all about. So how does this translate? How does this participatory idea translate actually out on the farm? So let me, let me just run through a little bit of a checklist for you. So the orthodoxy is find out what you can produce really well and do it and do it only. Do you like apples? We'll produce apples. You like wheat? Produce wheat. You like corn? Produce, you know, does your land produce corn? We'll produce corn. Okay. And everything has become a monospecies. We'll take care of the rest. On our farm, we've been so inefficient that we've encouraged diversity. You know, efficiency was the was the mantra, don't do something that you're not really, that, 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 that you don't do as well as something else. Do only the little tiny thing and everything else will be fine. Well, that's not the way nature works, is it? Nature does a lot of inefficiencies. You know, when people say, tell, tell me, you know, these, uh, these vegans, If you're a vegan here, you're in the wrong place. I got a news for you. No, but they say, say, cows are inefficient. Herbivores are inefficient. I say, man, you better believe it. And I'm so thankful they are because if everything was efficient as zucchini squash, we wouldn't have any soil. That's true. Because annuals deplete soil, perennials build soil because of the difference in the energy cycle. Annuals extract from the soil and make a great big succulent seed or a big fruit or, you know, something. And, and they're extractive. Perennials are additive, okay? And, um, and, and so, so 
here we are being inefficient because you've got all this different livestock and wildlife and different ecosystems. And my goodness, you could graze that hillside instead of putting trees on it. Yeah, but those trees are like hydraulic pumps and they pump the water back up onto the hillside, up onto the top, okay? And how many of us, you know, have grown up in agriculture hearing about efficiency, 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 and suddenly we have this black swan event and suddenly we're being told, no, 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 no. Oh, actually, you need to be resilient. And in fact, somebody, somebody did a word search. This is interesting. I read it in Wall Street Journal. Somebody did a word search on, the, um, on the, the British Parliament over the last 10 years to find out the usage of the word efficiency or efficient and the words resilient or resiliency. And they found in the last 10 years in British Parliament, the word efficient and efficiency have dropped 50%, and the words resilient and resiliency have increased 50%. You think people are starting to realize, wow, if you're not resilient, there's nothing to be efficient about. First, we have to survive. First, we've got to make it. And there's growing understanding that if you're going to make it, and there are rocky shoals to navigate, you don't want to be in an aircraft carrier. You want to be in a speedboat. The larger you're the ship, the harder it is to, to navigate. And that's why there's business books that, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not the big that eat the small, it's the fast that eat the slow. And boy, during this, I was so glad we were a small outfit. I didn't go to bed at night wondering, well, I wonder who's going to sue me for not having the right quarantine procedure. My team, we just, we just went right on. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a deal. So how we develop diversity is the permaculture idea of stacking. So we're increasing the income per acre. We're stacking you know, eggs and broilers and cows and turkeys. And you, you, you develop, you, you stack all that on the same acre. You diversify. And none of the, uh, uh, including, you know, in the winter housing, you know, we have these hoop houses and we, you know, we have, we have rabbits up here. Uh, chickens and they can go up on a mezzanine, you know, little tabletop floors, and then and then pigs are underneath. But none of the species as is at a density that you would have to have if you were being efficient to make that single species pay for the infrastructure. But you have forty percent chickens, forty percent pigs, forty percent rabbits. And you have 160% of the production that you would have in a typical housing situation, but you don't have any pathogen smell or problems because the diversity is keeping the host populations low enough and the pathogens confused enough. You know, confused pathogens are a good thing. I mean, think about it. You know, <clears throat> a rabbit parasite comes out in a rabbit turd. And... Uh, those little uh, parasites, you know, they hatch. There's Matilda here and uh, Frank over there. They see each other. Whoo, she's a hot chick, you know. Let's get together and make babies, and you know. So they get together. Well, where you want? Where you want to live? Well, you know, there's a hill right over there. Good place to good place to uh, to establish a house. So you know, here goes um, little you know rabbit protozoa. You know, um, Matilda and Frank, and I think that's what I called them. And they, I don't actually know them personally. That. They go over here to a, to a little hill that they see to establish a house. Now, now you know, these are microbes. So, you know, this, this little hill is, is um, you know, about 
a quarter inch away, but that's okay. They've got they've got time. They got they got together young, so her biological time clock is still working okay. So you know they they, they can get there in about ten years of microbial life. A hike over here. To, they get there. Sorry, honey. We're doomed. This is chicken poo. We can't live on chicken poo. Not enough time to go to some other poo. So we can't have babies. We're going to die. Life sucks. And that's confused pathogens. That's what you get with inefficient diversity. Okay? So guess what? Now we don't have to buy any vet bills. You know, we, we, I mean, we have thousands and thousands of animals, no vet bill. I mean, we might use a vet once every three years. I mean, if everybody used a vet as much as we did, there'd be about, you know, 10 of them in the country. I'm not saying that proudly. I'm saying that humbly respecting and paying homage to a beautifully and wonderfully made system that it's our responsibility to leverage and not adulterate. And it responds. It responds like that. So, um, diversity. Uh, how about water? You know, the orthodoxy is you don't have to participate in water. Water. What can you do about water? It rains when it rains. It doesn't rain when it doesn't rain. Not a thing you can do about water. How about if we participate? How about if we become modern beavers and start building, <coughs> excuse me, building ponds? You know, 500 years ago, North America was 8% water. Today, we're less than 4%. Because we had 200 million beavers eating as much vegetation as all the humans in North America today. North America produced more food 500 years ago than it does today with hybrids, John Deere tractors, and, and, and chemical fertilizers. That should give us all pause to realize. Now, it wasn't all eaten by people. You know, there were 2 million wolves that needed 20 pounds of meat a day. All right? Um, you know, there were there were birds. Uh, Audubon said he sat under a tree in like 1820, recorded in his diary. He said, I couldn't see the sun for three days for the birds that were going over. That's before Tyson. Okay? So, Nobody was in a factory farm house at that time. So water. So on our farm, we say, we let, let, can we participate in this? Yes. So we build ponds. And every time we get some money, we build another pond. We just keep building ponds, ponds, ponds. Till now we have enough that we can actually irrigate. So we can get several inches of water on, you know, on, on most of the farm when we want to. And what that allows us to do is maintain the biology doesn't matter whether you're organic, inorganic, or otherwise. When it gets dry, it gets dry, and the microbial community just kind of shuts down. And so if we can maintain, you, you never get more sun than you do in a drought. So, you know, uh, get, on, get, on some, get on some water. Get on some irrigation. A lot of farm kids that want to stay on the farm, they grow up coveting the neighbor's land. We got to expand. If there's going to be a place for me, I've got to, you know, we got to expand the land base. And so a lot of farm kids that want to stay on the farm, they're hoping the neighbor's dad dies before theirs. That's not a good way to grow up. And I'm suggesting 
that if we would put as much creativity and money in water as we do in, you know, finagling the succession plan, we might already have a succession plan. How about fertility? Fertility, you know, the orthodoxy, the non-participation is, hey, you just let us formulate your chemical fertilizer for you. It's okay. You just let us get your fertilizer for you, and, and, and you just go out there and, you know, do your thing, but we'll take care of your fertilizer. And, of course, it's going to be a chemical fertilizer which has no life. To me, philosophically, and I so appreciated um, Kate's talk there, about the about life and death and the cycle and that's what you know life death decomposition regeneration life death decomposition regeneration that's that's the most fundamental uh, uh, cycle ecological cycle but the whole chemical fertilizer approach comes at it from a philosophy we can have life without death I got news for you you can't have life without death and for those who think, oh, haven't we gotten beyond, you know, beyond eating life? Well, go lie naked in your flower bed for three weeks and see what gets eaten. Everything is eating and being eaten. That's the truth. Everything is eating and being eaten. I mean, a compost pile is a beautiful example of that. And why the industry can't appreciate the majesty, magic, and mystery of a compost pile. It's like, it's like a compost pile isn't sexy, but a bag of 10, 10, 10 is sexy. I got to tell you news for you. A lot more sex happening in a compost pile than a bag of 10, 10, 10 chemical fertilizer. So fertility. So we say, no, we're not going to let somebody else deal with that. Thank you very much. We'll deal with our fertility, and it's going to be carbon-based. Because soil is built with carbon, something that lives, something that dies, and we're going to become interactive with it. We're actually going to build a biology. So guess what? We're going we're gonna to move more toward perennials and not annuals. We're not going to till. We're not going to destroy the soil. We're, we're going we're to concentrate on perennials. You know, one of the most, um, and we're, and we're going to build this organic matter. Now, one of the cool things about the organic matter is that as organic matter decomposes, it gives off carbon dioxide, which when it encounters uh, H2O water in the soil, it creates carbonic acid, which is the most efficacious, efficient uh, acid for breaking out the minerals in soil. So if I took a rock out here, and I know you've got rocks out here, if I took a rock and put it up here and said, I wonder how much molybdenum, boron, cobalt, selenium is in this rock, we could treat it with hydrochloric. We could treat it with sulfuric acid to break out those minerals. You know what the most efficacious mineral is? Carbonic acid. So we're, we're lacking our fertility, not because we haven't brought in enough minerals from outside, it's because we don't have enough organic matter decomposing enough to make carbonic acid to break the minerals out of the soil. I got to watch this. It was one of the most uh, uh, coolest things I ever saw uh, when I was uh, much younger. And uh, when we came to the farm, it was gullies and rocks. In fact, we had so little soil, Dad had to pour, uh, he mixed uh, concrete in a wheelbarrow, poured it in uh, old used car tires 
pushed a half inch pipe down in there and we, we didn't have enough soil to hold up electric fence stakes. So he'd make these concrete stanchions, put them on the tractor platform. And my brother and I, he was a little older than I was, and two of us kids, we could, we could you know, when we were six and nine, uh, we, we could heave the, the edge of these. Dad would drive real slow. We'd heave the edge of these off. And uh, then he'd go and, and, and put um, uh, rebar electric fence stakes down in them so we could uh, move, the, move the fence, move the cows. <clears throat> now, all those areas have 12, 14 inches of soil on them. Okay, that's happened in my lifetime. That's pretty cool, okay, in my lifetime. But here's the thing. Back in the early days, you'd have thought we were growing uh, broom sedge. You got broom sedge here? Uh, we'd have thought you were growing broom sedge as a crop. I mean, full broom sedge, uh, uh, dewberry vines, all that sort of thing. And you look in the, you look in the book, you know, Enrid Pfeiffer weeds in the what they tell or Joseph Gokenauer weeds guardians of the soil you look at these and you say you, you look at the what what does that what does that plant indicate well broom sedge low calcium poverty okay well that's what we got I go out and I'm walking one day and I see this big healthy clump of broom sedge and a a red clover has come right up through the middle of it has it's it's not a real robust red clover but it's a, it's a single, you know, with a nice little pink blossom on it. I go back to the book. I say, well, where does red clover grow? I like red clover. Cows like red clover. How do we get more of it? Look at the book, red clover. High calcium, high fertile soil. So I got broom sedge, low calcium, infertile. I've got red clover right up through the middle of it. Fertile, high calcium. How can this be? And what I was able to see was I was watching. I was watching the transition as we were adding organic matter and the soil biology was coming alive and the calcium was coming out of the rocks. I was watching the transition from poverty to wealth. I was able to watch it. And we now, you know, you, we don't have any um, broom sedge. But we never planted a seed. We just fed the soil and we participated in the soil. We didn't expect somebody from outside to come and fix our soil. And, and, and we, started, we started chipping. We, we got a chipper and we started chipping so we could do large-scale composting. Now we chip, you know, we probably put on somewhere between, you know, 25 and 30 tractor trailer loads of compost a year. And we've taken our organic matter. You ready for this? We've taken our organic matter from in 1961 when we came from 1% organic matter to today, 8.2. Now think about this. One pound of organic matter holds four pounds of water. Every percentage increase in organic matter holds 20,000 gallons of water per acre. So we've gone seven clicks. One, two, okay. One to eight. Seven, seven times 20,000 is... Come on, somebody tell me. You had math teachers, didn't you? Or y'all homeschooled? Okay. Um, 140,000 gallons of water per acre that we hold today that we couldn't hold in 1961. Is that cool? Is there something you can do about water? Is there something you can do about... But that was done because we participated in the system and freed us from the dependency on Putin, 
on Russia and on nefarious agendas from large corporate interests. Okay, um, next, orthodoxy says, segregate things by machinery, more and more machinery. And segregate, put, you know, put, put, your, put your animals in a house and, and, and all that. We say, no, no, I think, I think we're going we're gonna to participate here. We're going to let animals do the work. We're going we're gonna to participate closely with animals. Well, how do we do that? Well, we follow the cows with the eggmobiles and the chickens, like the egret on the rhino's nose, they scratch through the cow patties. Does that take effort to go out and move the eggmobile, gather the eggs, know where it's going to be? Yeah, it does take effort. It's participatory effort. But guess what? Eliminates the flies. We don't have to use any ivermectin. It, 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 it spreads all the patties out onto the, onto the ground to uh, increase the fertility. And we get to sell eggs. And so, we, uh, so what most people pay somebody else to do to come in with their grubicide, their parasiticide, their, uh, you know, all this. Instead, we do all that. You know, we let, we let animals do the mowing. Very little, very little mowing. You know, a lot of farmers around us, they all, they like to brag about how much hay we made. We like to brag about how much hay we don't make. Because that four-legged pruner, I've, I've kind of started just so you, those of you who are in marketing, I've started trying to not use the word grazing anymore because grazing has a negative connotation now because people usually think of overgrazing. They've been, you know, biased by all the, you know, anti-animal stuff. So I'm now using, instead of grazing, I'm replacing it with the word pruning. Because pruning has a real positive kind. I mean, you would think a, 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 a vineyardist or an orchardist who doesn't prune, you'd call them negligent. Well, I'm pruning with cows, okay? And, and so, um, so we, we use them as pruners. Um, we use animals, for example, in compost turning. We're doing that right now. We've, of course, come out on pasture with the cows. And in the winter when we're feeding hay, we feed in a, in a, a, under a, a shed so that the winter rain doesn't leach the, the uh, manure away. And we build this, um, we build this tall, um, we call it the carbonaceous diaper. And it's anaerobic, of course. And it's accumulating under the cows uh, in the hay shed. And we put corn in it. The corn ferments in that bedding, and the cows come out. We put pigs in, and pigs then turn it like a big egg beater and turn it into the most beautiful aerobic compost you ever saw. And animals are doing the work. And we don't have to buy the machinery to make, and we don't have to double handle it to make windrow compost piles. It's all being done. I can be here, and the pigs are all working at home. They all showed up for work this morning. I didn't have to... Um, um, uh, buy workman's comp for them. I don't have to change their parts or change their oil. What a retirement program. When you're done with them, you eat them, you know, so it's a, it's a perfect, it's a perfect uh, deal. And, and the pigs now are in hog heaven. We're not asking them to do something they don't want to do. Uh, they love to do this. I mean, it's the best environment in the world. And, um, and the pigs now, rather than being just bacon and pork chops, they are now co-laborers on our team in this grand land healing ministry. So it changes the relationship and the emotional and the spiritual aspect with them. Um, 
But as nice as that is, you still want to keep moving when you go in with them because they are omnivores. There's a reason why the mafia has pig farms. Um, it, it does give me pause to realize that these pigs that come up and want to be scratched, all that, if I lay down for a half hour, uh, in a half hour I'd be missing my nose and my, you know, my ears, and my, in, in another hour I'd be missing my spleen and my liver. So, but, but letting animals do the work, okay, that's a, that's a big deal. So we're using appreciating infrastructure instead of depreciating infrastructure. And so instead of managing a tractor, we're managing the pig. Okay, that's more participatory. The, the orthodoxy says, use a lot of energy. You know, be, be, uh, be energy, energy intensive. We want to see how little energy we can use. In fact, several years ago, what it was, 2009 or something, when energy prices spiked way up, um, I read a thing that said the average farm spends 50% of their, 50 of, their in, uh, of their expense is petroleum. So we did a little internal audit, and we found out that we were 5%. And suddenly I realized, goodness, diesel could go to 12 bucks a gallon and we'd still be okay. Now, do I want to pay 12 bucks a gallon for diesel? No, I don't. But it does mean that we'd be the last guy standing. And there is a little bit of solace in being the last guy standing. You hope by the time you're the last guy standing, some other clever you know, guy figured out how to come alongside and keep you from being the last guy standing. But, you know, uh, again, um, how much can we pull the plug on this energy thing by letting the animals do the work? Uh, the orthodoxy says um, uh, high capital, you know, uh, uh, you know, buy more stuff, uh, go into higher debt. The average farm in America takes $4 worth of depreciable capital infrastructure, that's buildings and machinery, $4 to generate $1 in annual gross sales. In other words, if you're generating $100,000 in sales, you got $400,000 tied up in depreciable infrastructure, not land, depreciable infrastructure. Our ratio is 50 cents to a dollar. That's an 800% difference. That participation frees us. By participating, it frees us. Um, you know, we've got the orthodoxy that says, you don't have to worry about selling. You don't have to worry about customers. We'll take care of that. You just take it down to the sale barn, take it to the grain silo, and we'll deal with that. And so the farmer has now, on average, across commodities, on average, gets now a little less than nine cents of the retail dollar. In other words, when you spend uh, a dollar at Kroger's or Bylow's or, or HB, what is it? HEB, um, it's a kind of Texas thing. Um, when, when you spend your money there at a dollar, the farmer gets. Nine cents of it. You know what that means? That means we could have a new, we're up for the farm bill, right? Farm bill's being debated right now. We could have a new uh, policy at the farm bill. From now on, farmers work for free. Farmers don't get paid anything. That's our new policy. And it would only change the price of food 9%. Is that not amazing? And so farmers have become enslaved to these big, you know, outfits. And so we did the, we did the drudgery, you know. Yeah, build a clientele. Know the customer. Have the customers out to the farm. What? Have the customers out? You mean you mean people are going to come and traipse around your farm? I mean, most farmers are hermit curmudgeons. You know, they can't imagine anything worse than having people traipsing around. It's going to be me and Matilda and nobody else. You know, that's where we're just, we're just here. I don't want nobody around here. I don't want anybody 
dog paddling after me, answer, asking stupid questions. You know, I get enough of those down. I mean, you know, they come and they, they, see, they see a cow out there with horns. And, you know, quickly the mother steals down to her little five-year-old daughter and says, see, there's the bull, there's the bull. He's got hands. Oh, no, nothing about horns makes him horny. It's what's between his legs. And you got to have these conversations with everybody. I'm so tired of people. You know, Alan Nation, my mentor, used to say, you know, the reason entrepreneurs get tired of their customers is because entrepreneurs develop something and then, you know, go on with it. But every day they've got new customers coming in from ground zero asking elementary little novice questions and you get tired of it. Like that. Or like, where are the roosters? Well, we don't have any roosters with all those hens. Well, how do you get eggs? There's a lot of ways to answer that. But uh, basically, it's, uh, you know, women lay eggs without men. Now, they don't have babies, but they, they lay eggs. All right. And you can go all sorts of directions with that. But, but the, the point is, that, that the system the system has told farmers, you just go out and produce. You go out and produce, and we'll take care of you. You don't have to think about customers. You don't have to think about the people that are getting uh, um, MRSA and C. diff uh, from superbugs, from the antibiotics you fed in the feedlot. Don't, don't think about your... You just, you just grow it fatter, 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 faster, bigger, cheaper... I mean, you just, you just keep cranking out the stuff. And don't bother yourself with questions about, you know, uh, with, with, with consumer-type questions like, like, what kind of life did the pig have? No, you're a farmer. Who cares what kind of life the pig has? You just grow it as fast and fatter and bigger and cheaper than anybody else. A pig is just, it's just, it's just animal protein. It's just a pile of inanimate protoplasmic structure to be manipulated however cleverly human hubris can imagine to manipulate it. And you'll be just fine. Don't worry about what they're saying out there. You just, you just disconnect, unplug, and you just work on your deal. Instead, we have done the drudgery of interacting with ignorant, stupid consumers and explaining our story and messaging to them and talking about how they can heal the planet with this kind of food, how they can have healthier kids with this kind of food, how they can eliminate half of their diarrhea, half of all diarrhea is foodborne bacteria. Well, we're not going to give you a case of diarrhea. What's that worth? I mean, you can have all sorts of fascinating discussions with, with people. But it takes time. And you work at it. And it's very participatory. It's very relational. And it's not nearly as fun as going out and watching a herd of cows graze grass. I know. But because we did that, we didn't have to destroy any chickens when the big plant had to close down at COVID. We didn't have to throw away a million pigs in the landfill when the big processor couldn't get enough people to come in and do it. And because we have a little bandsaw mill, we were able to build and, 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 and make things with our own lumber, and we didn't have to pay the price that lumber spiked to during, are you with me? And so it was that, it, 
What I'm saying is it is participating in the drudgery, in the foundations of life. Whether it's if you're a, if you're a farmer, it's what I've described. If you're a if you're a, a, a not a farmer, it's it's getting farther down on the food chain. It's getting in your kitchen. It's culinary arts. It's participating in what society calls chores. That's the way to ultimately liberate ourselves. You want to liberate your kids from sick doctors or from sickness? Well, there's sick doctors too. But it, Get down in the trenches and participate and learn about some backyard herbs. Learn about how to make tinctures, other things. Okay, about done here. The orthodoxy says you don't have to participate with each other. You know, it's a dog-eat-dog world out here. It's all about, it's all about do I get mine? And you got to fend for yourself. And what we've found is collaboration works a lot better than competition. And so we put emphasis on developing to, facil to, to facilitate a community where we surround ourselves with expertise that knows how to grow things, build things, and fix things. Grow, fix, and build. I would suggest that that beats a 401k plan any time of day. And that's what we're seeing right now is people starting to enjoy this liberty themselves by starting to participate in buying land, in, 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 in getting in the game, getting in the game. So how about you? How about you? Do you have a food stockpile? Do you have water security? Do you have a solarium for heat or a wood stove if the power goes out? Do you need an air conditioner? I mean, we need to, we need to do the permaculture, you know, plant plants around our houses and, and uh, let them grow up so we got, you know, cucumbers growing instead of air conditioners. Um, do you have a direct link to as much food as possible? How about getting educated about the non-drug healthcare system? Finding a functional doctor or a naturopath or an alternative doctor or an acupuncturist or a uh, you know an iridologist you know any of those any of those um, quacks. I mean, what we're seeing is is we're seeing people you know investing in like you know hyperbaric chambers in their homes, uh, those kinds of things. You know, take. Start participating in our own health care. Goodness, we don't, even, we don't even ask our bodies what they want. We just go to the doctor and say, fix me. And we're completely non-participatory. You know, join a Weston A. Price Foundation chapter. Um, you know, stash some gold. You know, invest in practical skills and knowledge. The point is, that we've got to begin participating. So I've got a couple questions here to kind of conclude with that, that are just thought-provoking. I, I want you to think about them a little bit. The first one, or they're not questions, they're just thoughts, all right? As we think about, okay, how do I participate? How do I now, okay, I, I get it, I get it. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to reduce my dependency. Look, 
for the last two years, seems like half of my conversations with customers and stuff, they start with somebody asking, how do I disentangle? How do I disentangle? Okay. Everybody wants to disentangle. They feel, they feel beholden. They feel, you know, again, we've been told, trust us, we'll take care of you. And suddenly we're realizing, ooh, I'm not sure I trust all these people that I've been told to trust in. So as we start thinking about how I'm going to make those changes, here's one. What you least want to do is what you need to do most. What you least want to do is what you need to do most. You know that thing you've been putting off? That's probably what you need to do most. So if we start making a to-do list, all right, I'm going to build a parallel universe. I'm going to make my, uh, my, uh, you know, my bunker. You know, in the last 18 months, I've had four phone calls from billionaires around the country, not millionaires, billionaires, who've called me and said, I'm concerned about the wheels falling off. I've got a family. How do I have, how do I create an agrarian bunker? There's an old axiom, if you want to know what's happening, Ask the rich because they run in circles that know things that us, that we peasants don't. Okay. And so I think, I think this is a valuable thing to realize billionaires are asking, how do I make an agrarian bunker? All right. So what, as we start our to-do list, how do I do that? What I least want to do is what you probably need to do most. Number two, if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. Now, all of us, we've grown up with this phrase echoing in our heads from some, you know, probably grandma. If it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. Yeah. You know what? Grandma was wrong. You know, we just had Easter. Maybe some of us, you know, were with family and friends and stuff, and, you know, we're getting together with the family, family deal, you know, and there's this, the, the newest little addition to the family is this little, uh, you know, Emily Sue, and she's like, you know, 10 months old, and she's, you know, running around on the, on the floor in her diapers. All the adults are sitting here chatting. Emily Sue, you know, she goes over here, and, 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 and she's just kind of there, and she, she grabs a, a, chair, a chair leg, and she kind of, pulls herself up on his chair leg and she's kind of tottering there. Probably her mom sees her first. Oh, look, look, Emily Sue, she's, she's standing up. It's the first time she stood up. You know, of course, then immediately all the adults, they all look at Emily Sue, right? And, oh, look, you know, she's standing. Emily Sue now suddenly she's standing there. Everybody's looking at her. She's terrified. Ah, you know, I'm center of attention. Loses her grip, plops down, falls on her diaper. What do all the adults do? Well, they come around Emily Sue and say, Emily Sue, if you can't walk any better than that, just quit. Because if it's worth doing, it's worth doing right. No, what do they do? They come up and say, oh, come here and put your hands up here. Let's try again. No, 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 no. Yeah, right? So I want everybody to promise me when you go home and you start making your to-do list, I'm going I'm to make these changes in my life. And, <clears throat> and you don't succeed right off. You plop on your diaper. That you'll pull your diaper up, look in the bathroom mirror. Everybody's got a mirror in their bathroom, right? Look in the bathroom mirror. Promise me you'll tell yourself if it's worth doing, it's worth doing poorly first. Because we don't do anything well first. We don't talk well. We don't walk well. We don't poop well. I guess we do poop. We just don't know where to put it. And we, we don't do any of this stuff well first. It takes time to learn how to do it well. 
It's worth doing. It's worth doing poorly first. Number three, Alan Nation, again, my greatest mentor, except my dad. Uh, he, he always said, the truest you of yourself is your 10-year-old self. What happens is we're kids. We've got imaginations. We've got fairy tales dancing in our heads. We're like Scout that Taylor was telling us about, that kind of that just, just imaginative, tuned-in kind of spirit. But then, you know, we want to please our parents. We want to please the teacher. And we want to please our friends. And then we want to please the guidance counselor. And then we want to please the professor. And then we want to please the employer. And by the time we hit our 20s, we're all in knots pleasing other people. And we've lost our 10-year-old dreams. I think one of the one, most wonderful exercises I've ever heard is to, to just imagine you're 10 years old again. What floated your boat at 10? What turned you on at 10? What, what, what did you aspire to be or do at 10? Probably that is the truest sense of yourself. And what happens is, as we enter adulthood with responsibilities, with expectations of other people, we lose our freedom to dream. We lose our freedom to dream. I want to give you that freedom today. I free you to dream. Return to your 10-year-old self and dream again. That's where you'll find your greatest satisfaction. Next one. The opposite of success is not failure. You know what the opposite of success is? It's quitting. Everybody who has succeeded has failed as much as the person who succeeded except once. They got up when they fell down. And every story, you read the story of Michael Jordan, for every basket that he made in a basketball game, he said, I missed a hundred in practice. Okay? So, there's no shame in failure. There's no shame in failure. In fact, failure shows that you tried. Okay? So, Pat yourself on the back for failing. And then get up, dust yourself off, and go again. Not, it's, it, it's, it's about continuing, not quitting. And finally, finally, when you sit down to eat, look through your plate. Uh, if you've, if you've um, studied the, the, the tracker books, um, Tom Brown, I think, is the is the guy, I think I've got the right name there. Um, and he talks about squinting and seeing things when you squint. And I, I don't know if Scout was squinting when she found that arrowhead, but um, imagine looking through the plate that's in front of you on, on the table. All right, you got your plate on the table. Look through it, squint your eyes, imagine what's on the other side of that plate. What's on the other side of that plate? There's a whole 
production, processing, marketing, distribution, chain of custody that brought that to your plate. And ask the question, is what's on the other side of that plate a legacy landscape I want my grandchildren to inherit? What is the legacy landscape that brought this to my table? And as we connect with that, as we get together with all of the supply chain on the other side of that that brought it to us, it'll affect, it'll affect how we eat and turn it into a sacred communion. From a pit stop, you know, Americans, we don't have a food ethic in our country. Food has always been of necessity, a diversion, a pit stop. It's not the most sacred, intimate interaction we have with our landscape. And so think about that as you look through your plate and think about what kind of landscape am I funding? We have a time where we're funding and defunding. Well, it's time to defund the landscape that our grandchildren uh, will not want to inherit and time to fund the landscape that our grandchildren will want to inherit. And that creates intentionality and it, it creates the most intimate level of participation in our ecological umbilical. And that's a good place to be because when we're there, we'll probably start making better decisions. And that's the ultimate gift that we can bring to society is lighthouses and beacons of good decisions, good policy, good plans, good protocols, good procedures for our culture, our earthworms, our water, our air, our soil, our health. Thanks for letting me visit with you. God bless you as we move this forward. Thank you. And now it's your turn to move your life forward. Joel just handed you the ball and he gave you a taste of what it means to live freely as our founding fathers intended. You are not alone on this journey, so find your tribe and create a parallel universe that you wish to live in. Big thanks to Joel for making his way all the way down to Fredericksburg, Texas, and a massive thanks to Force of Nature, who not only supports freedom and actively works to help you thrive in your highest capacity, but also sponsors this podcast as well as our annual What Good Shall I Do conference. If you enjoy this podcast, I invite you to be more participatory in actually giving me a review or sharing it with someone who also loves freedom because that's how we share this message. This is how we amplify change and this is how we light up the freaking night. And if it's daytime, this is how we make it rain. Now for some parting wisdom, one of the things that is a really important gauge of someone's character is when you meet them, if they're able to look at you in the eyes, if they're able to shake your hand, and what happens with that handshake is a direct reflection of that human being. And when I met Joel and I shook his hand, the dude has beast mode forearms. His fingers were massive. I mean, crush town. That guy could squeeze a lemon and extract all the juice to make lemonade without an actual press. That means that guy's legit. He's out on the land. He's using his body. 
he is walking the walk and talking the talk at the same time. And this is something that I emphasize with Scout, my six-year-old daughter, Rin, my two-year-old daughter. She hasn't figured it out yet. But when you meet someone, give them a good handshake. Not so good that you're going to crush the bones in their hands. They're going to think you're a psychopath, but definitely not frail and weak and limp. That is the worst sign. That is like your body communicating that you're just a pile of mush and that you're kind of don't have much purpose or passion. So good, hard handshake. Look at someone in the eyes. That's how you connect. That's how you communicate. You're a hard worker. You have above average social skills. And maybe most importantly, you're not at home all day playing video games. So adopt this little life hack of mine and really unleash your highest potential of connecting with other human beings in a way that is memorable and brings joy. Farewell, friends.